All right, hello everybody. Uh, this is uh, Catfish Weekly 24. Uh, we got with us Chuck Davidson, Lyle Stokes, myself, Chris Fudd Wallace, and then we got a special guest today of Brad Dirt. Um, before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and hand it. Our tonight's episode, by the way, is about uh, the channel catfish and or catfish structure. Uh, the fish, catfish related to the structure, things along that line. So we're also going to talk about um, things that are going on with Brad, like his guide service, his book, uh, some other things he might be doing. But uh, before we get started with that, we've got a few things to go over, and I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to, to Lyle to go over some of it. All right. Thanks, Chris. Um, Twenty. This is week 24 of our show, and... Um, Catfish Weekly started out as an idea from Paul Ragsdale, and uh, him and Brian Lanham, uh, I believe, done the very first Catfish Weekly show, and uh, Paul brought me in on the second one, and we done a couple or so, and and uh, we brought Chris in, and then later Chuck joined us, and um, for for reasons of his personal reasons of his own, Paul has decided that uh, he no longer wants to be part of the show, and. Uh, you know, we wish him the very best in, in his endeavors, whatever he decides to do from this point on. But, um, I just wanted to, to mention a couple of things uh, about Paul that a lot of people don't know. Um, you know, I get asked or told messages and phone calls that, you know, Paul doesn't uh, tournament fish and uh, he's never caught a 100-pound fish and different things. But what Paul brings to the table in the catfishing community is he... He, uh, he helps other people in ways that the rest of us probably should be doing and don't. Um, he helps people at uh, nursing homes that are disabled and, and unable to get out and go fish. And uh, He goes and visits with them and talks about catfishing and stuff like that. And uh, When the tornado hit Joplin, there were some people down there that lost everything they had. And uh, He contacted sponsors, and I don't know how many or who all they was, but I do know that Dave Ashby at Bottom Roll Tackle was one of them. And they put together tackle boxes and and uh, fishing rods and different things and send to these people. And a lot of this, um, Paul done out of his own pocket without um, any help from anybody. And uh, he done that does that with children uh, that don't have uh, means or or um, parenting that are able to do that or, or however you'd like to put it. But he does things for the catfish community that we all are very proud of what he does and. Uh, we're going to miss him on the show, and like I say, I hope he wishes you the very best in whatever he decides to do, and he'll be fine, and uh, maybe at some point down later on we can get him on the show as a guest or something, kind of check in and see how he's doing. But I just wanted to get that out there, and uh, we'll continue on. All right, sounds good. Um, I want to talk real, real quick about we have a, a good friend of mine, also a fan of the show, um, <coughs> Jason Malone, his wife Jennifer Malone, uh, they're dealing with something that would be very, very difficult for any one of us, and that's an 18-year-old daughter that has had some very serious medical issues. They've been asking for prayers all week, um, and we, we really want all of our, our watchers and listeners to send them prayers. If you're not friends with them, just send them a message, whatever, saying you know, you're going you're gonna to pray for her. For her. The daughter's name is Brooke. Um, something that it's it's definitely uh, nothing that would be easy to deal with. So we got to be there for them. They're great people. Um, if you can, 
do that for me. You know, Jason Malone is his name. Send him a message if you're not friends. Add him as a friend. Tell him you're sending prayers for his daughter, Brooke. So hopefully uh, from everybody at Catfish Weekly, we hope she gets better and everything turns out good. And um, that's all we have on that. Uh, before we also go on into tonight's discussion about what we're talking about, uh, Brad and a few other people have contacted us about some corrections that we had on uh, one of our pra uh, our past episodes, which was about the illegal guiding. Um, so, Brad, if you don't mind, go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about what you were telling us. Which, And I also want to let everybody know, anytime you see something on Catfish Weekly, uh, we try to have accurate information. We try to we try to get it all out there. If we're ever wrong and you know we're wrong on something, <coughs> don't hesitate to let us know. Send us a message. Um, get us the correct information, and, and we'll get that information out there. That's what we're trying to do is get good information out in the catfish community and uh, really just help a lot of people and have a good time doing this. So, so if you don't mind, Brad, go ahead and elaborate a little bit on what you were telling us about some of the Coast Guard uh, captain's license, things like that. Well, first off, gentlemen, <clears throat> excuse me. Thanks for having me. Um, been a long time coming. I've been talking to Lyle for God knows how long about this, and since I'm flooded out, here I am. Um, enjoy my microphone. We couldn't get the computer to work in the last second, but uh, no, I just wanted to point out that there is are some inland lakes uh, around the United States that are not federally controlled, not uh, Corps of Engineers, not interstate, not international. A uh, perfect example is the big walleye lake just to the west of me, Devil's Lake. Uh, it's totally inland water, 200,000 acres. And because it's state-controlled, U.S. Coast Guard has jur no jurisdiction over it. Therefore, guys who want to work over there only have to follow the state laws. Now, most of the major catfish waters that you guys talk about, that we read about, those are all federally regulated waters, and Coast Guard would apply, as you guys were saying. Okay. Now, do you have much of a problem? Just not, I know this isn't really the subject, but do you have any sort of a big problem with illegal guiding around you? Or Nah, we don't have much of an issue with it here on the red. Um, when I came into the game, there was two or three, and uh, one quick meeting and a threat to call down to Duluth for the Coast Guard to come up and do a little inspection, and that pretty much took care of that. And uh, I've kind of gotten that reputation of the enforcer now on that. So um, I hear it a lot. I want to start a guide service. I'm going to, you know, just make a few extra bucks. And I say, you show me your Coast Guard license, and I'll back your boat in for you. And uh, I get the occasional telephone call about it to, uh, you know, inquire on what it requires. And usually by the time I say two to $3,000 before you ever put the boat in the water, that's pretty much a deterrent. But, you know, that's got to pay to play yeah and all right um i guess i'll go ahead and we'll get the tonight's uh topic started on on, on uh, catfishing the structure and everything and i'll i'll go ahead and hand it off to lyle to to get that ball rolling on that okay um you know just to clarify any any federally regulated water we're, we're talking about um, anything that the corps of engineers uh, has control over that that is federal federally regulated water uh, is that not correct I want to make sure we're clear on this 
my understanding is federally regulated by the Corps, or in our case, because the river is actually the border between two states and they seem to want to fight about who actually controls it. And then, of course, our river runs into Canada, so that makes it international water as well, even though the Corps has really nothing to do with it. It still falls under Coast Guard jurisdiction. Right, right. So, so um, And tributaries. Right. No, so what I'm, what I'm saying is, uh, like the Ozark, Truman Lake, uh, Mark Twain Lake, anything that has a dam that is controlled by the Corps of Engineers is federal, federally regulated, and at that, part, at that particular time, you would have to have Coast Guard approved license or you're breaking the law. That's my understanding, but you go over to Minnesota on the up uh, towards the headwaters of the Mississippi, apparently that doesn't apply for those guys. Uh, and, and apparently they've got senators involved on it. Right, it's, uh, and some of the people around here, um, they also do not think it applies to them, but in reality it really does. Um, well, tell a Coast Guard officer that when he's breathing down your neck. I would love to see one down here. I really would. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about structure and catfish, Brad. I know this is something that, that you're pretty familiar with, um, especially after writing your book and things. But um, I've been had the, the fortune of being on the Red River and, and uh, know what you guys are looking at sort of up there. But um, every every piece of water is a little bit different. And what I have is, is huge rivers and... Uh, major structure like dams and ledges and drop-offs and um, uh, rock banks and bluffs that go up forever and things like that. And um, what The way I feel about that is structure is structure. It doesn't matter if it's on a Red River or if it's on a Mississippi River. You have to decide whether fish are congregating on a wing dike uh, and, and figure out which one because they won't stay on, on every one. There's some that they want to be on, some they don't. And, and what changes for that and uh, what I'd like for you to help us with is how do you determine which piece of structure that you're looking for and when does it change because they're you know they may be on a uh, on a tree ball route where there's three or four balls all piled up uh, today and a month from now they're liable to be on a ledge or a drop-off or something well you ever heard the term lateral movement <laughs> matter of fact I have. <laughs> um, you know, that's it's interesting, and you pretty much said it. A river's a river, and a catfish is a catfish. It's just some are big, some are little, some have wood, some have rock. But the bottom line is they all have structure, and fish are pretty much creatures of habit no matter where you go and where you know what you're doing. Um, you know, when I was researching what spots and why they hold whatever they are, um, once I really learned what I was looking at, I always follow that main seam to the main current break. And that's kind of the the, the main go-to point. When the fish are feeding, they're going to be off of that main channel break. Unless you're in the exception of, of major high water, then they move up the hill a little bit more. But uh, I've actually got my river where I do most of my work broken into um, three sets of GPS coordinates now. I've got high water GPS quarter, coordinates low-water GPS coordinates and kind of the middle-of-the-range set. And, you know, I'll abandon spots depending on how those main current seams are looking. Uh, I've got some old cottonwoods that two weeks ago wouldn't hold a fish. As soon as that water was coming up, we were banging big fish out of them. And it was a matter of 
you know, six to eight inches of water coming down the chute to actually push the fish up into them. And you kind of got a trial and error what's going to do what inside, uh, losing my train of thought here, inside turns, outside turns, things like that. And that goes right back to the lateral movement thing. The fish tend to not <coughs> leave a specific area. They just tend to act differently based on the conditions they're dealt. Um, I've got a spot that I can fish. It's about a half a mile long. It's got a good outside, a good inside, a big hole, and a big chute down the middle. And just depending on how the water temp and how the water is moving, you can fish from one side of the river to the other, and in two days, it's a matter of casting 10 feet to the right or 10 feet to the left. So it's pretty interesting stuff once you start learning what you're looking for. Right, right. We have a question from Robert Tallman, Brad. Um, he says he's fished the Arkansas River for years and caught a lot of blues and some flatheads, but never caught a channel cat over five pounds. Do you think that they're not there, or is he going about trying to target them wrong? Okay, so the more I dig into this national scene of catfishing, I have <laughs> come to a uh, conclusion, and if there is a, a book number two out of me, which is slowly in the works, don't expect it anytime soon, um, I do have an answer for that, and it's called real estate. Uh, you just imagine, um, Minnesota River is a great example. They have big flatheads down in the Minnesota River. They're only four and a half hours from me. Uh, they don't catch a ton of huge channels. They catch big channels, but they don't catch a ton of them. And the reason being, all the best real estate has been taken up by the flatheads. So now those channel cats are dealing with flatheads eating them when they're young, and they don't get the prime feeding areas because the flatheads will kick them out or kick their ass, one of the two. <laughs> and, or both. But uh, that's kind of where I've come to. I mean, you guys deal with the flatheads more than I deal with the flatheads by a long shot. But, I mean, think about it. The best, juiciest woodpile is always going to have the big flathead in it or should have the big flathead in it. You're not going to find the channel in it because of the pecking order. So it comes down to real estate. And I think blues play into that as well. As they're scavenging open water, they're kind of taking that up part of the aspect away from it as well. Well, you know, and and like I was talking earlier, the the, um, the water we fish, you know, we have channel cats, we have blues, we have flatheads. Uh, mostly what I do is tournament fish, and, and uh, we're targeting blues because it's hard during the day and, and a lot of times at night to put in enough um, flatheads do you any good. And, and earlier this year in one of the tournaments we had um, Jason or Justin Wolf uh, caught a 12-and-a-half-pound channel cat. Um, it was actually one of the, his three fish limit because it was bigger than some of the other fish that he caught that day. Now, for our area, 12-and-a-half-pound uh, channel cat is a giant channel cat. But the reason we don't have the big uh, channels that we once did is because of commercial fishing. And uh, that could have something to do with with what um, Robert's talking about. I know that the Arkansas dumps into the Mississippi and, and a lot of the places there's just not enough regulations. And uh, them guys don't care if it's a, a 10 or 15 pound channel cat or a 15 pound blue or flathead, you know, if it's something they can sell to make a buck on, then that's what they're going to do. And I know that has devastated uh, the big channel cats in our area. You know, and that's a that's something to play into it. Uh, the human element 
we don't have locals keeping fish up here. The cat, channel cat fishing up here for locals, very few get kept. So they're all going back. The other thing, and I started playing with this in my book, is, and I've got biologists starting to buy into it, is I think a channel cat has a metabolic life. Meaning he's got X amount of life to live based on his metabolism, feeding, and living. And down south where it doesn't get as cool, he's always feeding and always living. Because when you start looking into fish farming, they can increase, they can actually slow a crop of commercially raised catfish down just by simply cooling the water. So you come up here where we have winter, number one, they're not being targeted at all for six months. But number two, they don't have to feed all winter. They just sit there and their metabolism isn't using up part of that metabolic life. We're still working on that one. But you put that with humans and with the competition of the other fish, it gives a, a pretty good case as to why southern states typically don't have the big channel cats. Right, right. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that, that uh, you guys have such a great fishery up there. I, it's, you know, there and, and uh, up in Wisconsin are two of the greatest places that I ever channel cat fished in my life. I mean, uh, Cindy and I actually had a blast both places. Of course, just getting to be up there around you guys and, and visiting with you for a couple of days was outstanding in itself. But uh, the catfish incredible tournament they have up there, although I'm not going to be able to make it this year, was an absolute blast. You know, we had a good time up there. And, and uh, to put the quality of channel cats in the boat two days in a row, uh, is pretty difficult. The first day we couldn't get a big fish. The second day we couldn't get a small fish. So, and that's what you have to do is you have to put two days together up there. But uh, it's an outstanding place to fish, and, and you really got it going on. Uh, people that that don't understand what a 20 or a 25 pound channel cat is really need to come see and let them let you show them what it's like to fight a fish of that magnitude because. Um, from my perspective, a, a 15 to 25 pound pound channel cat, and, and mine was near 30 pounds, the big fish that I caught. And, um, it, it's like catching a 50 or 60, maybe even a 70 pound blue, because they absolutely they fight till the bitter end. They're not giving up, and, and it's just an outstanding time on those rivers. Well, let me ask you this: having been in the tournament, could you imagine some of the totals if we we're on a big fish year without that slot limit? Oh my gosh, no. Or add culling in for the day because it's a yeah. slot limit with no cull tournament. Right, because you know, and that's the thing. Once once that goes in your boat, that's your that's one of your fish, and and uh, uh, it's really hard because you know you and I visit about that. It, it don't take a uh, uh, before noon. Don't keep anything under fourteen pounds, and I'm thinking, holy crap, man, how many people is going to catch that many fourteen pound channel cat? But well, you thought uh, I was stupid when I told you that. <laughs> like I said, first day we couldn't get any you know, a lot of big fish. And the second day, that's all we caught. We didn't catch no small fish. It was all giants, and and uh, it, it's a really it's a tough thing. Uh, if I go get to get a chance to get back up, or I have a better outlook of, of what I'm going to be looking for. But yeah, it's it's a great fishery, and and uh, I know that uh, a day on the water with you would just be something that most people should be dreaming about. Well, I just try to show them a good time. You don't always get the big fish, but. Most of the time, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Okay, guys, who's next? Um, I can, yeah, I was going to talk to you a little bit about that. You were talking about some of your explanations, on, and I've wondered that myself for a long time, is 
is why some of these rivers have these giant channel cuts and some don't. I mean, like when you look at the Ohio River, um, they consider anything over 10 pounds to be a, a very nice channel cut. And, and I do too. I mean, anywhere in the state of Indiana, I pretty much consider anything over 10 pounds to be a really good channel cut. Um, if you look at some of the biggest tournaments that they have on um, the Ohio River, uh, one of them is the Rising Sun Tournament. It's a two-day tournament out of Rising Sun, Indiana. And this last year, I fished it with uh, Scott Wiseman, and we turned in, in one day, I think it's a five-fish limit, and with our five fish, they were all channel cats, and we had 46 pounds, almost like a nine-pound average in channel cats. And I believe he said that was the biggest, you know, all-channel cat weight he's ever seen in that tournament. And it makes sense to me with what you're saying about the competition of food. Um, because of the commercial fishing in the pool of water that we were fishing, a lot of the flatheads, a lot of the blues have been decimated in that pool of water. So, therefore, them, them channel cats are getting bigger than they've ever seen. And even though it looks like that, that kind of water, that giant river, you know, you would think before that had plenty of resources to accommodate you know, large channel cats and everything else. It never really has. Yet now that all the commercial fishermen have hurt the other population so bad, you're starting to see bigger channel cats. And that makes perfect sense. Um, that aspect is still kind of a work in progress, but it sure makes good sense because the better, in particular, the better flathead waters typically don't get the big numbers of big channel cats. You know, blues, to me, the more I learn about blues, the more I think they're just big crappies. Big <laughs> what? <laughs> big crappies. He said oh. the more he learns about blues, the more he, think they, that he thinks they're like big crappies. <laughs> they, they are some eaters now. <laughs> they do eat. Well, I mean, you fish them. Uh, you know, as a northerner looking in, when you guys are out hitting the deep holes in the dead of winter where the blues are laying, we're looking for the deepest hole under the ice to catch our crappies. In the spring, they go up into two, three feet of water. You guys are anchoring along the edges, catching your blues in two to three feet of water. Guess where we're casting for our crappies that time of year? <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, it's just bigger gear, bigger bait. <laughs> Same concept. You know, in the wintertime, um, Andrew Little is a really good friend of mine, and Andrew uh, does a lot of construction. He works on heavy equipment, and he goes all over the place, and uh, he hadn't been able to fish a lot <clears throat> this summer, but he goes uh, to Lake the Ozarks and fishes in the wintertime, and he goes up around them big old mansions that they build around the lake, and he sits out there and catches some absolute giant blue cat uh, right in front of people's houses, and they don't even have a clue that them fish are even in there. But the, they bite so much lighter that the rods that I built for you is what he uses to catch blues in the wintertime. Makes and sense. He, he, and he's caught, uh, he's caught 60 to 70, 80 pound fish on those rods because they, they, they're a little more sluggish in the winter. But now when the water starts warming up, uh, he has a, uh, quite a bit of, another set that's quite a bit heavier uh, to catch him with then and when he heads to the river. But he uses that light tackle in the winter down there. Well, that makes perfect sense, because when you're crappie fishing in the winter, you use the whippiest rod you can get through the ice, just exactly. to sense the, the bites. you got it figured out, man. It's the curse of understanding trends. <laughs> when you read things like that, it just kind of clicks when, you, when your brain's working right. 
But don't you think that's how all these successful tournament guys, that they've got something similar to what you're talking about figured out? Absolutely. They've got a system. They understand that it's going to ride the system, and then it's just a matter of understanding how to fine-tune the system faster than the next guy. Yeah, you. you there's things that you start, like for myself, you know, being that I, I still consider myself new in tournament catfishing, even though I've been doing it for four years, really... You know, I mean, things like your book, you know, they help a ton. I actually started looking at water a little different after reading your book. And I, I'm not going to say I'm by far, you know, the best. I honestly think that, you know, some of my faults are actually, you know, I'm, I'm figuring those out as well, you know, by, by what I'm doing. But, like, I'm getting better at when I'm going down the river and I'm looking at just the river and watching the, watching the water flow and things. I'm seeing some of the, the things that I read in your book and I'm seeing... You know, I'm starting to see that a little more than I did before. You know, whereas before I might have just went past it, never paid any attention to it. I see it now. I'm I'm finding and targeting more fish. Um, do I have more to learn? More fish. Yeah, catching more fish. I mean, as this last tournament that I fished in was a, it was a prime example. I mean, I I I had a ton of fish. I had a lot get off. I think I had some you know some hook problems and things that I need to work out and. But as far as catching, you know, decent fish and getting out on the bodies of water, different lakes, different rivers, and just seeing the spots where fish are at, it's coming, it's coming more to me as I'm as I'm fishing these tournaments and things like I said, like your book and stuff, watching watching uh, current seams and things, and looking for eddies around them. I mean, that's stuff that comes with um, being out on the water, but also knowing what to look for. And your book really helped. Uh, me to look for things like that, and it's it's really um, helped me so far. And I, I, you know, like you're talking about them other guys, they got things like that figured out, and it's and and they're dialing it in quicker than the other guys, and that's what's helping them win them tournaments. So, um, again, first I I I bought your book too, by the way. You know, I didn't get it free, nothing. I actually went out and bought it. You know, when you first announced you had a book out, I went out and I got it. Um, I read the book, and like I said, there's there's a lot of good information for the guys that really, you know, want to understand the the specifics on on, you know, the movement of fish, water levels. I know you got you got a uh, some flow charts in there. You know, when the water's flowing a certain rate and rate of speed and everything that you like to um, keep track of. So it's it's all in your book, and it helps yeah. out. And speaking of the you know flow in particular, every river's different. So it's one of those things where you live in a different place than where I did the research. You need to actually go out and kind of adapt it to your own needs and what you have. I mean, you might have a dam that's controlling water versus somebody else that doesn't have a dam. But the point is, if you put the time in and just know what you're looking at and for, um, you know, it's very adaptable, and I tried to make it adaptable to anybody. Yeah. Um, you were talking a little bit earlier about where you're targeting fish at. My question, I guess, for you would be, would you say that where you're targeting these fish at, especially their channel catfish, would would you say all the channel catfish are going to be going through that area, or do you think that only big channel catfish are going to be hitting that area? I mean, or, or is it a matter of... of um, specifics that you look to target bigger and smaller fish? Well, I'm the first to admit, and I tell clients this all the time, I'm going to give up numbers for size. Um, 
anybody can go shallow, throw some stink bait out, and catch a million two-pounders. And I'm not doing that. I'm looking at specific structure, specific current seams, and I will be the first to admit that I give up numbers of fish in an average day to do that. Um, you know, I've talked to some guys who have come up here. They're not from here, and they go out and throw the old Sonny's dip bait out, and they catch 150 fish in a day, and they wonder why I'm only catching six. I said, well, my smallest was 12 today. You know, and that's how it is. You fish for big fish, and you fish for small fish. People yeah. who just fish are going to get a big one sooner or later, and people who fish for big fish are going to get some small ones mixed in. That's just the nature of the game. Yeah, would you would you say that you're, but the the area that you're fishing is more targeted for big fish, or is it your bait that you're using that is, is, tar, you know, eliminating the smaller fish? Uh, I'm going to say the bait's fairly irrelevant. I think it's more location. Um, I tend to like the more violent current seam. Um, you know, the place where the little fish isn't going to want to eat or where he's going to be scared to go because a big one might be around. Um, I know I'm usually the last one to take the five-ounce sinkers off when we're in a high-water situation coming down, and that's simply because as soon as the fish move off the secondary seam into the main channel, that's where the big fish go, so that's where I go, so I need the extra weight. Um, you know, I've had the spring from hell with water temperature and spawns and all that stuff, so I've been hugging pretty shallow to the shore trying to get the fish where they're getting out of the current, and when they go out and feed, they just move down the hill. They're not moving very far. And, yes, I do give up numbers, and, yes, I fish a little differently. Okay. Um, uh, we got Robert Tallman asking another question for you. He says, uh, when you fish for channel cats, do you basically target them as you would other fish with live bait? Uh, what presentation would you use, etc.? I'm not a big live bait guy, and I'll tell you the reason why, is I'm cheap. Um, <laughs> we don't get to go throw a cast net because while all the other ways of catching fish commercially are illegal, as is cast netting. So we have to either catch our bait or buy our bait. And at a buck and a half a sucker, I'm not going to throw a live out usually just for that reason when I can get five cut baits out of it. Um, gold eyes in my mind, which is basically a big shad for those who don't know, they're just too big to put on live. But I tell you what, we get these little catfish called stone cats. They look like tiny little red flatheads. I'm sure Lyle saw a bunch of them last year. Caught one on an eight-ounce circle. Yes, you did. And he huh. probably stabbed it right through his brain, too. Yes, I did. Um, you put those things on live in pre-spawn, throw them out in the fast water, and the big girls just can't leave it alone. But that's about the only live bait fishing I do, simply because I don't like to... Uh, waste expensive bait and I'm I'm a I'm a big believer in a good piece of bait in the right spot is more important than what the bait actually is. No. Now the type of structure that you look for in your river, is it normally a wood pile? Is it normally a rock? You know, a lot of big rocks that are down in the water. I mean, what are some of the things that your some of the structure since that's the topic for tonight? What's the structure you're targeting? In your, we have in your a mud bottom river for the most part, so rocks aren't a, aren't a big issue. Uh, if you can find some riprap during this pre-spawn and spawn, 
you're golden. But for the most part, our structure is going to be some sort of current break, such as a hole or a log jam. Uh, I'm a huge fan when they're actually feeding in the main channel of find two holes connected by a trough between them. It basically makes a runway between the two, and I like to anchor up usually either right at the head of the hole on the back downstream hole or right at the tail of the first hole and catch them while they're running. And it that's a heck of a pattern when you can get it to roll. Um, I'm not a fan of the deep, biggest, deepest, nastiest hole you can find because I think it leaves stagnant water. I want the smaller holes that are a little less accessible to the big numbers of fish because the big guy's going to protect his turf. So if you can find that smaller hole that's a foot or two deep and maybe the size of your boat, you're only going to have one or two big girls in there. But if they're in there, you're going to know it in a big hurry. And okay. the bigger, deeper holes is that's where everybody else goes. Yeah. So How, you, you, some of them bigger catfish, what do you, what's the shallowest you'd fish for them? Would you fish for them in a foot of water or Absolutely. two foot of water? Absolutely. Uh, when they're in a negative pattern wanting to get out of the current, I'm not afraid to go into a foot of water, six inches of water, some sort of current break. And they don't really care what it is. I mean, even a single stick stuck in the mud, just something as out of the current as they can get. You just entice them a little bit and get them out of there. So I'm not afraid of shallow water at all. Yeah, the, the place that I fished this last weekend was kind of interesting to me. There was a lot of things that I I don't see in, in a lot of the rivers around me, and, and some of that was... Um, the the this river section that I started out in, there was, uh, I'd guess, about five to eight foot of water for the most part, and it was a slow, slow-moving current. It was, there was nothing spectacular about it. There was a few good uh, uh, rock ledges and some things that I seen that interested me, and um, I got up river a little ways, and I, I, the first thing that I hit was that foot and a half of water that was you could see on the top of the water, uh, it was a good long stretch. I mean, I guess probably 150 yards of a foot and a half of water with with lots of rocks on it. You could see all the disturbances on on the tops of the water. Um, you know, I took my deep V through that. You know, it was I was I chunked my prop up a little bit. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> and I got through that. I got into that little four to four to six foot water again. Then I hit. You know, the water was a little bit faster because that, that all that rock slows slows that water down, slows that current down. So I, I got, basically I went through a, a nice long stretch of four to six foot again, hit another one of them rock things that slowed the water down. Got, got through that one, up past that, I found water that was 20 foot deep and, and on average 10 foot deep, but moving at a much greater speed. I mean, a lot more current. And that's, you know, I started in that first 20-foot hole before that, um, right up the river from that one of them uh, shallow areas. And I was really debating on going back and anchoring right up on the head of that shallow water area with all them rocks and throwing out there, but I never ended up doing it. Uh, but I did catch, you know, a 12-and-a-half-pound channel cat. I had another one or two that were as equal or bigger than that 12-and-a-half that had came off on me. Um, plus a lot of other fish that I was just having problems with. But um, do you think that that in that that shallow stretch would have probably been a good time? And also another thing to keep in 
in mind is when I got back to the boat ramp, uh, those shallow areas that I went through, they had put a ton of fish eggs on the side of my motor. You're obviously in the middle of the spawn. If you're seeing fish eggs in the rocks and, and finding your fish near that, because they're going to find the slowest water they can to set the nest. Um, we've been, the last couple weeks in the spawn, we've been hitting the wood piles on the back of an inside corner along the cut bank and always dropping uh, a bait right in the corner between the root ball and the cut bank. And what we've been doing is pulling males off the nest, doing that. And um, to talk about your short bites and your hooking, the way we fix that when we've had the problems with the missed fish is those males in that shallow water in particular, they're feeling threatened, you know, kind of like a noodler going down, shoving his hand in, they're going to bite a hold of it. Well, what they do is they pick up the bait and they move it over to the current and drop it. They're not there to eat it. They're there to get it out of the, from threatening their nest. And when we shortened the bait up, so they had no choice but to put the hook on, I bet our catch rate went up 50% this spawn versus last spawn, just by shortening up the bait for that situation. Yeah. And now as our spawn is ending, they're coming out to the faster water, and they're not they're not picking it up and carrying it to the side anymore. They're smoking it. I mean, is it possible them fish eggs were other types of fish? I mean, they were telling me that the for as many fish as we were catching, it seemed that it was it was more pre-spawn in that area, and that's that was way north. That was actually you would almost consider it Michigan. That's how far north in Indiana I was fishing. The water temp was only seventy-four up there. Mm. You're probably dealing with carp eggs on top of the rocks because the cats tend to put them in the cut banks or in the rocks in pockets, in nests, and then the males guard the nest. So you probably weren't finding catfish eggs. Yeah, not saying I you weren't. I'm just that doesn't. No, make no I didn't. I wasn't. That, I wasn't meaning to imply that the the eggs that were on my motor were catfish. I was just saying that going through them shallow areas, some type of fish had had spawned through them, and I didn't know if maybe even channel cats would be feeding on that those fish well, eggs going through those shells. Absolutely. The lake guys down in Iowa, they chase the carp spawn. Yeah. When the carp are spawning, they go up in there looking for the catfish coming behind to eat the eggs. So, um, you know, it makes perfect sense. I would yeah. think, I would be inclined where you're seeing the shallow water dumping off, that they should be right at the back of that shallow water towards the front of the hole where it dumps in. It's the old in-fisherman run-riffle hole theory. They yeah. should be somewhere in the vicinity where it's coming off the riffle because that's okay. going to create the best seam and the best lack of current and the best current to wash the bait in. Yeah, that that in itself would would have helped me. I mean, if I my my first thought was I probably would have anchored up on the top side of that and fished right in the middle of it and I mean, I might have caught some fish, but I I might have done a little better fishing right off that back ledge. You right. know, actually if you're anchored up. in front of it, you're going to find feeding fish because they're going to be coming over it eating whatever's riffling in there. Yeah, making the next move. So you might be finding some post-spawn or some pre-spawn towards the front of it, too. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. If you got uh, some questions for him, Chuck, we'll let you have a shot at him for a little bit here. We can't hear you, Chuck. You might have muted yourself. Glad to have you, Brad. Thanks. Um, are y'all landlocked in any way between um, your part of the river and uh, Manitoba? No. 
So, uh, but well, you know, some of the pictures I've seen where you've been holding catfish, you said just on the Canadian side. Do you, do you get to take your boat up into uh, Canadian waters, or is there? Uh, we can do that. Uh, I've not been to that stretch of the river, but they say when you get up, it's Pemino's the the border crossing. You uh, park your boat, walk up, check yourself into Canada, and have a nice day. Now, when we go to Canada. We drive the hour to the border, we check in at the border crossing, and we drive another hour and a half north past Winnipeg, and we dump in uh, below the big St. Andrews Dam in Selkirk, or Lockport, actually. And that's where you see the TV shows. That's where you see the magazine articles come from. That's the famous Manitoba Channel Cat Fishery. That's but where it's the you same river. A lot of guys fishing by a dam, and they're catching really big channel cats. Yep, and what that is is the massive Lake Winnipeg, is up there you know it's I don't know the exact size off the top of my head but I do know I tried driving the road that goes alongside of it and it took six hours to get past it going straight so it's big and what they do is they come up the Delta out of that lake into the Red River when they want to feed and they're bottled up right at that St. Andrews Dam and Lock so it's 22 miles of giant catfish with the best of everything they have a no catfish over 24-inch law, so none of those big fish are being kept legally. The fish can go out in the lake. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of rest. They don't have to fight the current. They don't have to fight anything. They come up the river when they want to eat, and then they turn around and go back to the lake. So they've got the best of everything up there, and if you can get a flood time just right in either pre-spawn or post-spawn when they open the gate, we actually will get Canadian fish down here. Oh, cool. So, um, when, do you think the uh, the channel cats do any kind of migration during their spawn, or do you think they uh, stay within, you know, 10, 20 miles their whole life? How do you think the channel cats There's really... There's uh, a study done by University of North Dakota, and I've gotten to actually talk to the professor who oversaw it in 1997. And they were finding that certain times of the year, certain water conditions, they were getting as much as 300 miles of migration. Um, in my personal fishing and guiding, when we have a spring flood and as spring is setting in and the water settling down, uh, we typically get our big numbers of fish. We have to go considerably north, which is downstream in our case. And as they're migrating upstream, we actually follow them home. And then we've got a low-head dam here in the city that actually bottles them up a little bit. And if everything goes as planned, we actually follow them home 10, 12 miles. And they bottle up under that dam for about a week or two. And then as soon as the temp hits 68, 69, and it's time to start heading to the nest, they turn around and we actually follow them back out. And then once they settle into the nest, then they become more homebodies until something like a flood happens and then they'll re-migrate again. But okay. they do. So to answer your question, they do both. So, uh, you know, your theory on the cold water and the uh, metabolism of the channel cat, do you think that has anything to do with the uh, channel cats uh, up in northern Canada, I mean, more central Canada, get bigger than they do around your area because the, the water stays colder longer? No, I don't think that necessarily has any real difference from where we're at. What I think those fish have is they have Lake Winnipeg. And they can go out and they can find a big hole and they can eat walleyes and gold eyes and whatever they want to eat in a lake situation where they're not being fished. And when they want to gorge themselves, they can run up the river and they can gorge themselves. 
So they're not living in the river, fighting the current, having to eat in the current, and having to do any of that stuff all year long. You know, they can kind of use it as a, as a migration tool. So you imagine they got the cold water working for them, and when they want to eat, they eat. When they want to sleep, they sleep. So I think they've got the best of everything up there. So they're living like a big, fat Wheeler Blue, pretty much. Yes. You exactly. Think, you think the restrictions they have on not over-harvesting uh, plays a, a huge role in that? Absolutely. I, uh, I, do, I, I don't understand some of these guys that, that think that there's an, there's never an end to, to quality breeding-sized fish. I just don't understand their line of thinking because it is clear-cut that if you go to your place or up into Canada with the restrictions that's up there, Wheeler Lakes and other places, the, the difference in the quality of fish is just unbelievable to where it's not re, re, or those restrictions are not in place. Well, I wasn't around yet, and, you know, I wasn't even thinking that catfishing was anything to do yet, but I've gotten to know a lot of the people who were around in the 70s and 80s around here and up on the Canadian side, and they said when, when uh, some of the TV shows started arriving on the Manitoba side, they said in 78 to about 85, you could go up there, and there would literally be canneries the men would go out and catch unlimited amounts of these big channels, and the wives would can them right on the shore. And when their big chest freezers were full, they would go back to Iowa, Nebraska, or wherever in the states they came from. Um, and they said, you know, number one, the guides and resorts started catching on, and the fisheries got, got ahead of the game going, wait a minute, if this keeps on, it's going to be decimated, and they just flat out outlawed it in 1996 to nothing over 24 inches. So it's total protection up there. And they have one line. You can only fish one line per person. So that adds an element of difficulty in itself. All right. Do you uh, do you pinch the barb down on your hooks or anything like you've learned from them guys up in Canada doing? You know what? If we're out fishing, we will. Um, the main thing is keep pressure on it. The... Uh, I don't think you lose any hooks if you know how to reel in a catfish by pinching the barb. No, I, I don't. Um, I guiding, so. you've got to leave it on when you guide because there's so many mistakes for giving slack and, you know, you name it, I've seen it. Okay, since this uh, show's on, uh, you know, catfish and structure, uh, do you actually ever go out and um, when you're guiding or fishing uh, your river, Go out and uh, mark fish, and actually, uh, you know, find the fish, and then fish on them. Or do you always just try to uh, fish known structure? Um, <laughs> finding fish is too slow to be guiding. I think um, if you're looking for roaming blues, I think it would probably be a lot more conducive. But when they're in, you know, when they're sitting in structure and a little bit negative, it's a real time-consuming thing to do. Is it possible? You're darn right it's possible with side imaging and all that other fun technology. But um, I don't do it. I utilize my technology to, to identify structure and dissect structure. Um, so I'm a little bit old school to say the least. It's, uh, you know, I'm a run and gun. I, you know, look till you find fish once you've established the pattern. Um, experience says we got 25 more spots to hit just like this one. Let's go rock and roll. But yeah. if I see something in a current seam that I like that I haven't seen or don't know what's there that might look interesting, I'll flip the imager on, take a couple minutes, take a look, see see if there's any fish sitting in there, see how it's, it's established. 
Yeah, when uh, last year, uh, you know, I tried a few times to get up the Wheeler, do some fishing in the, uh, you know, the lake part, not down on the river, you know, below Gunnersville. And I did a lot of reading on the, uh, you know, the side scan, that you know, the down imaging. Um, you know, and I kept seeing these guys talking about uh, separating the fish from their structure by speeding their chart speed up to about 10 and then going across the structure uh, really slow. And you're really, uh, you know, faking your electronics off and telling it that you're going 10 miles an hour with your electronics. So if a fish is just a few inches uh, up against a log, it'll actually separate it. The, the arch isn't right because the uh, your speed's not going to let the arch be right of the fish, but you can actually see that something's there. Mm -hmm. So um, when we went up looking for a big pig in December, and I was determined to get me a 100-pounder, which I wasn't able to do, but we was fishing around the pipes, and I kept going across the pipes, and I'm like, that's got to be a fish. That's got to be a fish. So I, I thought about what I read on the hummingbird site. I turned my uh, speed up to 10. I went across that pipe real slow, and I said, that has got to be a big catfish because that's part of the pipe. And I, I turned around and uh, precisioned anchored on him, and you know, within 15 minutes, I had him, but I was just wondering if you did any kind of, uh, you know, using your electronics to do any kind of, you know, stuff like that. Well, different parts of the river. I mean, if we're up 45 miles north on the Drayton stretch where there's no wood structure, there's a lot of subtlety and holes and different things. It's a matter of, well, you know, being up there enough, I just turn on the imager and drive over the hole and say they're on the right or the left today. Um, if you see a funny swirl, which has sandbars moving and whatnot up there, you can dissect it that way and, if there's any kind of structure set at all, you'll pick your fish out in a big hurry. I've just found that utilizing the imaging to find fish, while great for tournaments, is a very poor decision for guiding because people are paying to catch fish, not look for them. Correct. Yeah, I was just wondering if, you know, if you've tried any of those electronic tricks when, when, when you thought you've seen a fish holding real close to a tree, you know, maybe tucked up under a little bit, or you know, if you did any, if you need, uh, had any tips for the, for the guys watching, to help them using their electronics and all. Well, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm big on you uh, identifying structure and how it's set in, to match it up with what I'm seeing on the surface. So I use it more of a recon mission than looking for fish. Okay. Now, with that being said, one of these next days, I'm going to get my 360 hooked up, <laughs> and. Um, what I want to accomplish with that is to set it down when I'm under anchor and get my lines out because I want to see if the fish are looking at my baits and hitting them or if they're looking at them and leaving them. That's what I hope to gain out of that. And, you know, am I going to see bait identification? Yes, they like this one versus no, they don't like this one. Or am I going to see are they coming on the bottom of the drop? Are they coming on the side of the drop? How are they coming in to look at the bait from the side or, or up and downstream? Because we still think they move linear, linearly in a river. Um, the more I read about this thing, the closer I get to it, I believe 360 is going to change the world, not just for catfish but for every fish, and especially open water fishing, uh, drifting in particular.
Now, I, I'm just to butt in here, since I know we both share a similar sponsor of Humminbird there, um, I know that you have the new Humminbird Onyx, and you're talking about the 360 and everything there. But just, uh, and I, could, I can even you know, tell you about some of my experiences with the 360. But as far as the Onyx goes, um, how are you liking the Onyx? What is it, what is it doing for, for you out on the water? It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it looks fun. It's uh, <clears throat> it's really really cool. It's it's a learning experience like everything else. Um, what I really like about it is the ability to get snapshots and not take GPS coordinates with it at the same time. It's actually a separated function because there's a lot of wood piles that I think just make neat pictures to show people what it can do and how it works and how to understand it. But you don't want people knowing that. <laughs> no, I don't care about that. It's just the next flood, and we're good for three a year. That tree oh, pile's yeah. gone, so I don't care. I've got a good enough memory. If it's going to hold fish now, it'll be there for the rest of the summer because I know next spring it's gone. Um, I really, really, really like the... Uh, ability to move pictures with the touchscreen. You just touch them, highlight them, you can punch them to a card and save them over from your internal to your internal, uh, things like that. And then the touchscreen keyboard for naming spots is so much nicer than the old way. Those the, are the um, highlights so far. Yeah, the what you're trying to tell me that you want to do with the 360, I also have the 360. Um, it, when I used it, and I, and I can't say I used it as much as I should, I really, but the time that I used it at 108 boat tournament and I got second place, all because of the 360. Um, but, I mean, and what I did, and I've said this a few times, you know, when I anchored up in my spot, I did what most tournament guys do when I threw a half moon spread off of the back of my boat. I put my spot up, I picked my spot. And through all my, you know, I got a rod rack through the back of my boat, through all my, my baits in a nice big half half moon, off the back of the boat. Turn my 360 on, and lo and behold, I see fish running all up in the front of my boat, straight across the front of my boat, not running anywhere near the back of me, running straight across the front of it. And you can actually see with that 360 doing a a sonar like uh, spin. You'll see if that fish starts right here, and it, you know it'll show it move a little bit more. You'll know that that fish is moving that direction. And uh, I guess don't. What I'm wondering is you're you're going to be using it to try to see if a fish is actually checking your bait out or not. You're going to have to use a split screen function because that 360 image in itself is only going to show you if the fish are going, you know, by your bait. You're you're going to have to actually look at it on like a um, switch fire or something like that to see if that fish is changing depth or, or doing anything to get down to where your bait is at. Yeah, well, I haven't got it hooked up yet, so it's going to be a learning experience. Um, and the reason I don't have it hooked up is because I didn't have the space to put a transom mount unit with float pods. So yeah. what has happened is we're having a custom bracket built on a trolling motor mount that's going to mount on the transom of my boat. So that's okay. the holdup is getting that um, you know, I had it all kind of drawn up in my head, and then I got busy guiding and didn't make it back over to the welding shop to have it fabricated. But it is in the fabrication stage right now, and it's uh, it might not be the prettiest thing in the world, but I think it's going to change things once they start looking at it, simply because um, 
with an extra set of cables loose, I should be able to take that off my guiding boat, take it to my walleye boat, and plug it into my 898 and still have 360 available to me. And I'm guessing with a couple more modifications, I should be able to attach that to my ATV and use it for ice fishing as well. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. Speaking of that, um, 360 imaging, and, I, and I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, Chris probably knows about this, but what, once the water temperature in my area reaches 55 or 60 degrees, um, I'm not going to say all of the fishing we do is is uh, drift fishing, but uh, extremely high percentage of it is drift fishing. Uh, is that 360 going to show you the fish before you drift into them or not? Yes. That will give you the ability to shoot in front of your boat and steer it to the shad pile or to the fish. That's why I say it's going to change the world. We're drifting backwards. Is it going to show those fish before the bait get to them? Of course it is. Yeah. Because if it doesn't, it's to me, it would be absolutely useless. I it's believe it's... Degree, it's a 360-degree view, 150 feet in every direction. Yeah, I was going to say, I believe 150 feet. And, and is that adjustable out further yes. or less? You can turn it down if you want to to get a bigger screen picture. But 150 feet behind you would be as far as you could go. Right. Yeah, max. Well, because that you know, a lot of times we're drifting, and the bait behind the boat is that far on a one or two ounce um, weight in your piece of bait, and you're bouncing along the bottom as you're going backwards. So, uh, if it would do that, then uh, you could tell if if you was off to the side, or if you needed to readjust the position of the boat before you got to the fish. And I could see where that would be an advantage, where I didn't understand how that would work before. Yeah, that's the whole point, especially for. Um, the guy I talked to originally is big into striper trolling. And they get that thing down and they shoot it 150 feet in front of the boat so they can kind of see where the bait is and where the stripers are moving on the structure forward, as they're trolling forward. Right. Now, see, I can see that would work excellent uh, on a lake when you was doing that because basically that's what they, they do. They call it dragging. You guys call it trolling, you know, tomato to bottle. But uh, basically you're we're, dragging in a lake, you're dragging the bait behind you and going forward, where in the river, you're using a trolling motor just to slow you down, you're still going backwards. You still can move to the right or left to make little adjustments. Exactly, exactly. And that's where this is going to come in. It's going to be a fine-tuning tool. I think if that'll do that, it'll be an outstanding uh, piece of equipment that, that people will go to uh, in, a, in a hurry. And, you know, it, it was made for bass fishermen. It was made for striper fishermen, but cat fishermen are always pretty industrious and figure things out and how to utilize it to yourself. But, you know, the ability to see what's in front of you or behind you, whether you're going forward or backwards is irrelevant. The ability to see what's in front of you, make an adjustment, and then see behind you where your bait's dragging and see what the reaction is, is pretty neat. I mean, the possibilities are really neat. And, of course, I haven't used it yet, but I've got it sitting here ready to go. Cool. Well, keep us posted on on what you think of it, and I know Chris is going to keep us informed on on what as he figures out his stuff and uses it more. Uh, and I'll depend on you guys to let me know before I jump into something like that. Well, it's uh, not a inexpensive tool. I'll tell you that right now. No, nothing, nothing is. Yeah, nothing. I was gonna say nothing is in the electronics industry anyway. And it's only sad for the downfall of that. That I can see is, you know, you, you spend three or four thousand dollars uh, on a piece of equipment today or tomorrow or this year or next year, and 
in a year or two, they've come out with something that has made that piece obsolete. Uh, you know, there ought to be a way that they can uh, let you upgrade to the next step without having, you know, and spend half the amount of money instead of having to redo every two or three years to get the latest and greatest. Well, you know, the original 997 was a free upgrade to the 998 software in 1999, or 98, one of the two, I can't remember, what, or I got my years mixed up. Whenever the 98 came out, it was a free upgrade from the 97 to the 98, so... You know, they did a nice job with that by allowing everybody to get that update. That's great. You know, yeah, that, that wasn't many just a faster processor. Well, we're running right out of an hour. Um, Brad, would you like to let everybody know about your, uh, your, your guide service? Sure. I'm up here on the Red River of the North, Grand Forks, North Dakota, right on the Minnesota-North Dakota border. Uh, we are trophy channel cats up here. Uh, I think I've only had one day I haven't broke 15 this year, as in a 15-pounder. So I've had a pretty good good stretch this year. Um, lots of fish coming in up until we got shut down. We should be back in the water next week. You can check out pictures, current reports, articles, sponsors, everything else you want to see, redrivercatfish.com. This is a web website to the guide service. Uh, I did, just like you, Chris, I... Uh, Happened to write this little ditty here about two years ago, cracking the channel catfish code. It's uh, basically all the methods that I've had to learn to stay on fish in fluctuating conditions, proven mathematically uh, and written in a way that, you know, I kind of tried to write it the way I talk. So it's pretty easy to read, pretty easy to understand. Uh, it's, it is some fairly intense stuff, and yes, the research was done on the Red River, but a, a river's a river and a catfish is a catfish, so... Once you read it, just kind of adapt it to your needs. Um, river flow, whatever you are, you know, follow water temperature. Of course, down south, you don't get the drastic temperature changes like we do up here. So the fish patterning and fluctuations will be a little slower in southern states than they are in northern states. But uh, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, it's been out since September, and this spring has dealt me probably the worst conditions I've dealt with since I've been a fishing guide in. So far, the uh, the book has worked spot on as far as patterning and putting fish in the boat. So, um, like I said, I've dealt with probably the worst spring conditions I've ever had to deal with, and I've my catch rates are actually up by almost a half a fish an hour average. So I'm really happy with the outcome this year so far. I, I would tell everybody, go ahead. That's available on Amazon, Bottom Dwellers Tackle. Uh, you can also get it on my website. Uh, catfishcode.com. Anything that comes off of that site is uh, signed by me because it's sent out of my house. Um, so if you want a signed copy, just go to catfishcode.com. Otherwise, Amazon Bottom Dwellers Tackle can get you taken care of. And that the book is fifteen ninety five. Um, like I said, I bought it when he first came out with it. Uh, for anybody who wants to understand what catfish are doing, wants to understand looking at the water, seeing some different things. Um, really just figuring out some some things to help you catch fish, channel catfish, and, and even other, uh, not just channel cats, blue cats, flatheads. The, a lot of what's in here was going to get you on catfish. A lot of it is going to pertain to most species of catfish. So, I mean, there's everything in this book from from moon phases to metabolism, flow, flow charts, um, his data, you know, pictures uh, with, with uh, his 
his charts on there telling you what to look for. Um, really, really is a book that I'd recommend. There's not a lot of catfish books out there right now that are going to give you the information that you're going to be able to get in this book. And I'm not just saying it. You know, like I said, I wouldn't have this book here on my desk if I didn't if I didn't believe, and I wouldn't be telling you about it if I didn't believe in what it was. I, I'm like that as a person. I don't promote products or sponsors or anything that I don't believe in. So if I'm telling you this is the real deal, this book is worth money, um, I think everybody should have a copy of it, especially a tournament cat fisherman. I don't care if you think you know everything or not. Uh, get it, get it, read the book. You know, you'll probably find something in it interesting, and it'll be worth the 15 bucks. So, um, definitely pick that up at one of those places that that Brad mentioned. You know, I'll add a little bit of a backstory to this. Is uh, this whole book came along because. I'm a huge fan of the uh, in, original In Fisherman book, Catfish Fever. I mean, I still think it is the Bible, and if you're starting out, I will tell anybody to go buy that book, read it, fish for a summer, and read it again. And I would like to think of this one as the sequel to that. And this whole thing came about because I was having some issues with a pattern, and I sent Doug Stangy a letter from In Fisherman who wrote the Catfish Fever book, and he wrote back and said, you know, we've just never really looked into it. And I said, well, I'm going to look into it. And, of course, this book comes about, and I sent was emailing with some of those guys. And um, before it was finished, I actually got to spend a day in the In Fisherman offices with Doug talking about the, what's in it and how it pertains to being basically a sequel of his books. So, I mean, it's pretty neat how the whole thing has evolved that way. And if you read some of their publications, they've really jumped on board for me with it as well. I believe he was in this book, wasn't he? You yeah, talked about him? that was the day I was down there. I visited with him about the 21st century, and you know Keith Sutton down in Arkansas, you know, wrote a few catfish books, and um, and I had the opportunity to visit with him a little bit for this book, and you know I've actually stayed in pretty good contact with both of those guys since then. So it's it's really a, a neat how it all kind of evolved, and that's that's a backstory that isn't in the book. I mean, it's it's opened a lot of neat doors, and you know when you sit down to lunch with Doug Stangy, and he says, "So what are you up to?" and you start talking about lateral movement, he goes, "I just don't know how I can help you because you've advanced my skill set." <laughs> uh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> That's always nice to hear, though, isn't it? Yeah, it, I mean it's really cool, and you know, it was just fun to talk to him and hear the stories of how his books came about and how his history has come about and what he's seen since he wrote the original book into how catfishing has evolved into what it is. And, you know, we're on the cusp of something very special in the next five to ten years. Um, what we have is an awesome fish and an image problem right now. But we're on the cusp of something very, very special in the next decade. We're getting there. We're, we're definitely trying to get the catfish recognized and... and not declared as a, a trash fish anymore. It is, like you said, an image problem. But uh, I, I agree with you. I definitely think that we're we're on the right path and it, it's moving in the right direction. may not be as fast as some of us like, but it's definitely moving in the right direction. Well, let me throw a dig in. Uh, I know a lot of the catfish tournament guys absolutely despise bass. But let's look at what they've done and how they've done it. And, I mean... There's lessons to be learned there that, you know, we need to get off of this hating them and start looking at what they did and how they did it because there's a lot to be learned in that aspect. I, mean, I look at KVD, and that guy just oozes class. 
Yeah. And we need some more people like that. I mean, that's well, what we need. And we're just at the beginning stages of this now. Those guys in the beginning of when BASS and some of the other bass fishing organizations uh, took off, they had Ray Scott, they had, um, I can't think of his name with Ranger Boats, but they had the greatest guys to set that up to make it what it is. And then on top of that, in those days, they got Bill Dance and Roland Martin and, uh, you know, all them guys that are now the biggest names in bass fishing was there in the beginning. Uh, they put everything together. They did it as near perfect as could possibly be, and they promoted it the the best possible way it could be. And catfishing didn't get started off that way, and uh, it, it's a, a long haul to get it to that point. Uh, personally, I'm not sure I want it to the point where bass is, but once we get past this image problem, uh, we're in. It's just that simple. Well, you know, and I think to the point, and I don't want to get into the rant, but there's going to be villains, and there's going to be heroes, and there's going to be celebrities. We all know that. That's right. There's going to be tournament trails that are going to fail, and there's going to be tournament trails that are going to prosper. And we're in that weeding out process right now. Who's going to step it up to the next level? Who's going to fall off the cliff? And, you know, that's... That's the stage where we're at right now in the industry. I mean, and, we can make a whole show just about that topic. Yeah, one of one of the recent shows I talked about, you know, the image problem, and 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 with a big tournament trail like Cabela's Bass Pro, things like that, that image is not allowing people to do things like weighing in with no shirts on. That that doesn't portray an image that helps the catfish community at all. You know, we need to portray an image that is, like you said, of it, you know, protruding class and and respectful people that are trying to get something done. And that image really really plays a big role in how things get done in the future. You know, but let's go back to the last two or three years. There's now catfish articles in Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, the mainstream magazines. Um, granted, I don't think any of them are, are worth reading, <laughs> but it's a start. Yeah. It's it's a start, and it's putting it on the mainstream. And when I was visiting with Keith Sutton, he said it the best. He goes, who's not going to love a big fish, especially one that you can catch without flying to some other part of the world? Yeah. And you, you were talking about Doug Stangy a little bit on, on your, in your book and everything. And, I, and another thing that I don't know if everybody knows about, there's a, a lot of uh, In Fisherman Catfish DVDs. I believe there's four or six of them. I know that I've had four, four of them, and I've watched them. And if you watch them, Doug Stangy's in a lot of those videos. You know, going out in his local rivers and just catching little, you know, two to ten pound channel cats. And you know, he shows what I try to show when when I'm out doing my tournament fishing or videoing or whatever I'm doing. It's that really catfish to me are a passion. They're just fun to catch. I don't care if it's a two pound channel cat. You know, I mean, if I'm tournament fishing, of course I'm going for a bigger fish. But I enjoy catching that two-pound channel almost as much as catching, you know, ten and fifteen-pound channels. Um, it's it's really just that passionate for me. I, I really do love catching channel cats. And you watch some of them videos, you'll see Doug Stangy has that passion just for fishing, and and he really likes the channel cats as well. Yeah, well, that's where he was brought up, and you know, I've worked in the TV industry for 15 years and the old Catfish Fever DVD from 1990. I mean, you look at the graphics and the video quality and it's laughable. <laughs> the information in it is priceless. And it's funny, too. 
So, I mean, there's a lot to be learned with, you know, those old those older DVDs. I mean, he is the true pioneer. He's the godfather of modern catfishing. He may or may not have known at the time, but he but he is. And, uh, you know, that new DVD they put out, which I bought because I buy all of them, I was a little shocked that I my ugly mug showed up in there three different times. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, I think we're we're on a, a good path to something really great. It's just a matter of who's going to hang on for the ride and who's going to go to the next level and who's not. Yeah, there's there's definitely you know there's work to be done. A lot of guys that are doing it, you know, keep up the fight. And and there's going to be times where things are stressful, things people aren't going to get along. We got to really put a best foot, you know, put our best foot forward, put our um, put our best you know, put our best mask on to, to get through the things that we're not getting, you know, really, uh, you know, compromising with people, doing things that is going to help us in the long run rather than make us look bad. Um, I know that we're running, you know, almost an hour and 15 minutes now, so I'm going to, before we start doing our closes, does any, anybody have anything else to, to hit on real quick? Or how about Brad, do you have any other things that you're working on that you might want to tell us about or anything in the works or? What I'm working on right now is uh, I'm fine-tuning what I've written. Um, I've got a couple of research projects in the works. Um, one of them is going to be a, a long haul, I think. Uh, Lyle was here last year and saw that pattern change the day of the tournament when they went out of the fast water and into the slow water. And I was telling him all week, get your ass to the slow water. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> get into the slow water, get into the slow water. And... Uh, he kept saying, I'm in the fast water, and Saturday afternoon, everybody goes, Where the, where's the fish go? And Sunday, they were in the slow water. You know, what took so long to get there? So I'm trying to figure out what's triggering the pattern and why the delay. Um, I've got it on paper, paper pattern. Now I'm trying to figure it out and isolate it and prove it again, which I'm struggling with right at the moment. And this would be for your for your second book? Well, later, we'll see if later down a, the line? We'll see if there's a second book. Okay. Um, I've got a couple of business plans sitting here, which could be dogs and or could be really, really exciting. And that's all I'm going to say right now. Okay. Nothing else that you want to let us know about? Come up and go fishing on the Red River. It'll change your yeah. life. <laughs> all right. Uh, you guys have anything else before we do our closing statements? I'm good. Me too. All right. Uh, Chuck, go ahead with your closing statement. All right, Brad. I want to say I, we really enjoyed you having uh, having you on here tonight, and uh, I got a lot out of it. Um, I just want to remind everybody: three weeks on July twelfth, we're going to be having our uh, second Alabama Catfish Trail Tournament at uh, Birchfield State Park on Hoyt Lake. Um, it's a night tournament from five. All right, hang on, Chuck. You're you're cutting out on us. Where'd you lose All right. me at? There you go. That five fifteen or something along that lines time frame. Oh yeah, it's from five p.m. to two a.m. It's a night tournament, and uh, hope to see everybody there. All right, Lyle. Okay, first off, um, just to update, uh, we had our Jack and Jill tournament. Uh, here a week or so ago, and um, we we made a mistake and, and hit that during the spawn. 
we, we actually had a really good turnout. We had 40-some-odd votes in the tournament. Um, the winning weight was 40-some-odd uh, pounds. Um, Troy Hansen, Amy Smith, and um, their partner, I can't think of his name right now, and I should know. Uh, anyhow, they end up winning the tournament. Amy caught a, a really, really nice 35-pound flathead. Uh, it was awesome. It's almost as big as she is. She's a little bitty thing. And uh, congratulations to them. Uh, it was a really good day. And uh, Jason, Vicky Mathena, and uh, Josh Mays got second place. Uh, first place uh, with they also got big fish was uh, uh, around thirty six, thirty seven hundred dollars. So uh, it was a pretty good day for everybody. Uh, we have a big tournament coming up in Keokuk, Iowa. Um, the 12th of July, um, it'll be another high-paying turnout tournament. Uh, the fish should be off the nest. Anybody like to come up there? Uh, it'll be an awesome, awesome fishery below uh, the Keokuk Dam. Uh, although you can go above it if you like, most of the fishing will be down below the dam, and and uh, it'll be a really, really good time. And come up and, and see what's going on. Brad, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, uh, of course, I've been up to your river and, and, and seen it firsthand, and the people that's not ever been there that like to channel catfish, uh, if they don't come see you, there's just no way they can understand what they're missing out on. Uh, I appreciate everything you do for our sport, uh, and, and if you get a chance, maybe we'll get you back on here after the season and, and uh, try to figure out uh, how your stuff worked that you're trying this, this year and, and get it going. Um, as far as that, that's about the only thing I got. I do have one thing to mention to Chris. I know he was talking about his uh, missed fish, and uh, I talked to him about this one time before. It's called Eagle Claw 2022. That's it for me. All right, Brad. Um, he got me. He got me laughing. Now I got it. Oh yeah. Um, hey, you notice I'm the one, only one today that never told you which hook to use. <laughs> oh man what was I going to say now <laughs> oh yeah your sponsors you want to thank some of your sponsors let us know who all your sponsors are and absolutely everything. Uh, first and foremost since he's sitting in front of me Lyle at Black Horse Custom Rods the man who made the Fighting Susie which uh, I would like some more Fighting Susies please for Lyle <laughs> um of course, Bottom Dwellers Tackle, Driftmaster Rod Holders, Fraybill, Plano, and, you know, G3 Boats. And, you know, everybody pitching in and helping me out, uh, it means a lot. It keeps everything going. Um, to, to do what we do, you got to have good gear. Um, I'm tough on gear. I'm the first one to say it. And uh, you got to have good sponsors and good gear to keep a good guide service going. It's just a main backbone of everything. Um you know that's I, I can't I can't thank everybody enough because it's uh, it's a huge deal. All right, hey Lyle, can you make a rod that has like a an auto inflatable bag that would like keep a rod floating if someone were to throw it in the river or lose it or? You know, it, it's possible. It'd be like an inflatable life vest. Once it gets wet and um, pop there up, you go. we might work on that. <laughs> I would need it. I would need it. You know, if I get one, I promise you'll be the guy to get some testing. <laughs> All right. And I'll probably be pretty quick at testing it, too. 
Yeah, you'll just, you just have to make him big pool noodles for his uh, grip. Yeah, for my for my grip. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right. Um. All right. Closing out. I, I again just because it's so important and I talked about it early in the show. Uh, Jason and Jennifer Malone's daughter Brooke um, battling some some illness that it, it's pretty bad. Um, she's been having some good days and bad, but uh, they're asking for everybody to send their prayers. If if you're not friends with Jason Malone on Facebook, send him a request. He might not get to it, but or just send him a message, you know, saying you're going to send him send the daughter some uh, prayers. Uh, again, everybody on Catfish Weekly hopes she gets better uh, as soon as possible. Um, we're all praying for. Her. Um, basically, the uh, Catfish Weekly website still has some uh, advertisement spots. It's fifty dollars for six months, thirty dollars for three months. Um, if if you don't have a banner or something to put up there, we, I have no problem helping you get something made to put up on there for you. Uh, ICA has a has a tournament this weekend, uh, Mississinawal Reservoir. It's a night tournament, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, it is a points tournament, uh, so it's a members tournament. You can become a member for $25 at the tournament. Entry fee is $60. Um, the uh, I think that's for the um, for the giveaway. We're still doing. Is it till the end of this month for the 50-pound digital scales? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you still got to the end of this month to post on the Catfish Weekly uh, Facebook page, either the page or the group, either one. Just post a, a picture catching a fish or, or something along that lines with a with fish and say it's for the uh, giveaway. Uh, also, if you want us to do a um, like a member spotlight on you or your, or your kid or something that's caught a fish, Post it on our page or our group and give us a little bit of story about the fish that was caught and who caught it and how big it was, things like that. And then during the show, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll highlight that and talk about it a little bit. Um, again, while each of us individually have our sponsors, the show itself is not sponsored by anybody. Um, any any products or companies that come on, there there there'll be a temporary uh, a sponsor for the for that month or whatever, but. Um, we're mainly just here to enjoy the sport of catfishing, get the information out there, have a good time, talk a, talk a little bit about what's going on in the catfishing world at the time. Um, so uh, I believe that's all, and you guys know, stay out of my spot.